0: I'm the lead pastor here at Risen, and it's a joy to be with you this morning and to be in God's Word together. If you have a Bible, would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. As you are opening that, a couple of quick notes. One, uh, next week is Father's Day. We understand that, but we are hoping to have... Maybe 15 members of the church who would join us for lunch with a couple of our missionaries. The Howells, after service, we want to join them and listen to them and pray for them and get to know them. So if you don't know our missionaries, we invite you to to carve out some time next week, maybe an hour. Dads, you can do that. Um, You can tell your wife and your kids that's what you want for Father's Day is to hang out with our missionaries for an hour. So uh, we'll have that next week. In addition, I just want want to update you and invite you to continue to pray for our brother Jens. And um, some of you know this, Jens, uh, uh, almost a month ago he broke his wrist and he uh, had a concussion uh, playing hockey. And uh, so we, he's taking some time off and he's getting better. And so continue to keep him in your prayers as he recovers. Uh, all right, with that, again, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, we are in our third week on a series of the, on the Holy Spirit. And we're doing this in part because... Um, We don't want to be a church that worships a different trinity, namely Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Um, We believe in the authority of the Bible, the centrality of the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's very word to us. God breathed. And at the same time, we recognize that sometimes the Holy Spirit can be sort of neglected in in, in the church. And so we want to spend some time off of Pentecost kind of diving into the Holy Spirit and understanding the Holy Spirit. And so we started with Pentecost just a couple of weeks ago. And then last week we talked about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Um, as always, when we are speaking of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, we are speaking of a him, not an it. Uh, we use personal language because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his people. He said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so we began our journey to talk about the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at this command of God to be Filled with the Spirit. And we said, it's hard. How do you be filled with the Spirit? And we talked a little bit about about boating and sailboats and wind blowing and catching the sails and the importance of when you're on the water on a sailboat, how it, it takes discipline. Namely, you have some things you have to do, but you're looking for the wind. You're being filled with the wind in your sails and you're being carried to places you otherwise could not go on your own. Uh, That's important because what the Scripture in Ephesians last week taught us is that if we are going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not under the influence of wine through drunkenness, um, that we will experience that supernatural joy and peace and patience um, as we uh, sing uh, to one another, as we make melody in our hearts, as we thank God for everything we are going through, and as we submit to one another. And so uh, we looked at that last week, and some of you may have been wondering, well, if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, Pastor Trevor, what direction are we going to go? Like, are we, are we about to go full Pentecostal? Is this Pentecostalism? And this morning, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we unpack a phrase in Scripture that is um, maybe known about and is often misunderstood, Namely, what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? By the end of this series, are we going to be waving flags in the service? Are we going to be? Uh, are we going to be uttering uh, languages that are unknown? Are we going to be shaking and writhing on the floor? Where exactly are we headed as we dive deeper into this? And so this morning, I want to open us up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, looking at that text as a lens through which we will be able to answer the question, what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? And so we begin in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12 and then into verse 13. This is verse 12. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, this is what he says in verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. Paul is writing to the church, and as he's writing to the church, he's writing about unity, and he's writing about individuality. And up until you get to this verse, he has talked about the Holy Spirit eight times before he gets to verse 12. And then he uses here in verse 12 a picture of a body. And the picture of the body is familiar to all of us because we all have bodies. And he wants us to see the body as a picture of the church. A body, he says, has many members. A body has hands, and it has arms, and it has feet, and it has a head, and it has toes. It's got all of these members, and yet the body is still one. So you have one body, and you have many parts to that body. And all the parts make up the one body. And Paul says this image is a great picture of the church That the church is one and yet made up of many individuals. The The church is not just one and all of the people are one so much so that they lose their individuality in totality. And at the same time, they're not just individual components that are separate from one another. Historically, the way that we think about this in the church is to to talk about Catholicity in the church. Maybe you've heard in the Apostles' Creed where we confess as a church that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic church. And maybe as you've confessed that historically, you've wondered, as I did when I was younger, am I just saying out loud that I'm Catholic? I don't think that I'm Catholic. Does this mean I'm Catholic? Well, there the word Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Catholic here means that there's only one true Christian church of all times and all places. One universal church, not a bunch of them. There are, sure, local communities, and in those local churches, there are people in those churches who are part of the one true church, but there, it isn't as though Jesus has multiple churches, and Jesus separates them out. If you are brought together in Christ, you are one with each other in and through Christ. So that's what it means to be Catholic. And if you want to be the most Catholic, you should be Protestant, but that's a conversation for another day. So the church is about unity, but not about uniformity. It's comprised of individuals, but it's not about individualism. And if you, you don't see both of these, you'll make a ton of mistakes. So the question Paul begins with is, what is it that makes us one? Where In our church, what is it that makes us one? The oneness that we desire, the oneness that we seek out. What makes us one? Is it the color of our skin? No. Is it who we vote for? No. Is it the sports teams we root for? No. Is it the colleges we went to? No. Is it whether or not we went to college? No. Is it whether or not we're male or female? No. Is it our age? No. Is it our financial status? No. Paul is going to ground this oneness In verse 13, as we look at what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So here's kind of the the outline that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, There's four points that we'll make, and they are right here. First, the gift every Christian has. Secondly, the gift that Jesus brings. Third, the gift for the disciples at Pentecost. And fourth, the gift of true equality. So um, so Paul is going to ground this oneness, and he begins with the gift that every Christian has. In verse 13, here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 13, how are we one and yet still many? He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So, so Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Greek, if you're slave or if you're free, or if any of the ways in which we divide ourselves in our world today, he says what makes us one is that we have been baptized in one spirit. We've had the baptism in the spirit In verse 13. And we're all made to drink of the one spirit. So look at these two kind of pictures. The first picture is one is that we were all sort of baptized, immersed in one spirit. And then the second image at the end, we all were made to drink of or or be sort of filled by one spirit. Again, imagine this sort of picture of being immersed around and then also receiving. Think of a fish swimming in the water. A fish is surrounded by water and the water is also somehow in the fish. Or think of a newborn baby. Uh, We have a couple of those in the church recently. A newborn baby doesn't breathe air until the cord is cut and it takes its first breath. It's surrounded by air, but now the air is in the baby, and the baby will continue to breathe air in order to live and in order to grow. And so Paul says what makes us one is that we were in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. But look at who is, who has, has this gift, right? It says all. All is the language. All again and again. All have this. And so this is a gift that every Christian has. Every Christian has this gift. The moment you became a Christian, the moment that, that you first saw your need of God, and the first time that you recognized, you know what? I was made for more than this life. I haven't found anything in this life that satisfies satisfied me. I have no peace with God. Um, I see sin in my life. I'm, I'm saying that I should do one thing, but I'm doing another. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. I need redemption. As you cry out to God and you said, God, help me. God opened your eyes to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when that happened, you were made new. The big theological term is regenerated. You were regenerated. You became baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 8 verse 9. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So so Christians are people who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They have experienced an eye-opening awakening as they've gone through a sort of Spiritual heart transplant surgery. That's what a Christian is. A Christian has a heart of stone, and then as they receive God, God cuts out that heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. So not everybody is a Christian. In fact, in this room, there are people who are Christian and are not Christian. But I don't want you to leave with a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who sees their need for God, has cried out for help, has submitted to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and has been transformed by him and is now walking with him. That's what a Christian is. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian or you need a new heart or you have, not, you have not cried out to God for help or maybe you have and maybe the Lord has brought you into this church this morning so that you would see that Jesus is the one who you need. I want you to know that God is available to you this morning because God is who you need. But well, when you hear baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, you might be confused. Or maybe you had a strange experience. Or some of you maybe have no idea why this phrase is controversial or how it's used sometimes in the church. So I have to, out of a, as a pastoral obligation teaching on the Holy Spirit these next few, weeks, I have to spend a little bit of time on this phrase. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to unpack that. So I'm asking you to hang in there a little bit. Um, And you'll leave, I think, more equipped and more grateful for God and the church. So here's um, the basic idea. Just by show of hands, how many of you have a preconceived notion of the phrase, the specific phrase, baptism in the Spirit or baptism in the Holy Spirit? Okay, good, a good chunk of you have some notion That's good. All right, there are two general ways of thinking about this term. The first way is the Pentecostal idea. If you are part of a Pentecostal church, you will hear about baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, you might even be asked the question, have you been baptized in the Spirit, to which you may not know how to answer. And here's the Pentecostal idea. The Pentecostal idea is that you become a Christian. And after you become a Christian and you get baptized in water, at some point, somewhere in the future, um, is most common, you have a second experience of God that is called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that experience takes a sort of ordinary Christian and through that experience makes that ordinary Christian kind of extraordinary, right? So you go from being a a, a non-Christian to a Christian, and then from a Christian to kind of a, like, sort of a, a, like a, a, a really gifted, profound Christian, often that is marked out by the speaking of tongues. And so in the Pentecostal idea, there are two stages. Stage one, become a Christian. Stage two, get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now this is important to talk about um, because some people have experiences where in which they have felt like less Christian because of this way of thinking. Years ago, I had a good friend of mine who was raised in a Pentecostal church and there was always this air in the church that if he didn't speak in tongues or if he didn't um, act in a particular way to show that he had had this secondary experience, he was looked down on as though he was kind of Christian but kind of less so. And he was in a meeting where he was surrounded by people who were all gyrating and sort of shaking and all speaking in tongues. And he didn't know what to do as he had people praying for him that he would. And he felt a tremendous amount of pressure because he just felt like he didn't have it. And so he just started saying things, he started making up words. Right? And, and he just started doing it not because of anything that was happening to him, but because he was so badly trying to prove to everybody else that he was good enough to be Christian like them. And I don't know if you have this view or if you've experienced this view, but the Pentecostal view, it, it sees Christian faith as a two-stage experience. So being baptized in the Holy Spirit... It, it, because that comes after you get baptized by water, it can lead a lot of Christians to wondering if they're Christian or they'll, they'll be feeling like I'm unsure, like I don't, I don't have these other gifts people are talking about. I can't do the other things that people say that you should be able to do when this happens. And so I want you to understand why Pentecostals think this. And so I'm going to do something called steel manning the argument. Do you guys know what steel manning is? It's the opposite of straw manning. Straw manning is when you say, let me show you the worst version of this argument and tear it down. I want to show you why the Pentecostal church believes this, and then I'll show you why it's wrong. Um, so, but you have to understand this first. So, the, so here's, here's how a Pentecostal thinks through this. A Pentecostal says the disciples were Christians before Pentecost. And I think if you read your Bible, you'll come to that conclusion pretty easily. The disciples were clearly Christians before Pentecost. And then at Pentecost, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire came upon them. And they spoke in tongues. And so the the Pentecostal reads that verse, that section of Pentecost in, in Acts, and says, what happened to them should happen to us. And on some level, it just kind of makes sense flatly, right? It happened to them. It should happen to us. And then in Acts chapter 8, you see something else that happens. In Acts chapter 8, the apostles in Jerusalem hear about some other uh, Christians in Samaria. They had received the word of God. So Peter and John come up, and Peter and John pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because they they don't have the Holy Spirit. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And so a Pentecostal reads Acts chapter 1 and 2 and Acts chapter 8. and And a Pentecostal just goes, look, it happened to the early Christians. It happened to the Samaritan Christians. Therefore, it should happen to all of us. And if you hear this, if you're in a church or you're meeting a Christian who says, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And you might not know what they're talking about. And if they're Pentecostal, you might say, I don't know. And then they might say, well, let me convince you that you need to be. And then you might leave going, man, I, I thought I loved God, but maybe I don't. Or maybe I'm not. Or maybe I need to start going to a, a church with flags. So, um, so, so I want you to understand that, that that's the basic thinking If it happened to them, it should happen to us. Are you with me? Okay, I've got got all of you? All right, stay with me. Um, Okay, so, but in order to understand why this isn't right, you have to understand what does baptism in the Holy Spirit mean? So I already looked at 1 Corinthians 12 as a grounding for all, but I want you to see that there are only seven times in the Bible where you hear baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this is First seen as the gift that Jesus brings. This is my second point, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift that Jesus brings. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, seven times in the Bible, the first four of them are all John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. And John the Baptist says over and over again, when Jesus gets here, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's an example in Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Where where I have baptized you with water, John the Baptist says, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the first four times we hear the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's all what Jesus will do. Jesus is going to bring this gift. And so what we can know for sure from the first four mentions is that it's a gift that Jesus brings. But that's not it, that's not the only thing. There's still three more verses to go, so the next two verses are all about Pentecost. Acts chapter one, verse five, Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive the Holy Spirit, right? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit um, in a few days, Jesus says in Acts one, verse five. And then in in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter is quoting Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus said, In a few days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the the gift that Jesus brings, this is the gift that Jesus brings, but it's also the gift for the disciples that they receive at Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They speak in other languages. Now, the disciples, as we said, were already Christians, but they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost after they were Christian. So the question that sits at the forefront is, well, why does that happen for them, but not for us? And I'm going to give you the short answer that can lead to much longer conversations later. But here's the short answer. Pentecost is an in-between transitionary moment in church history. Prior to Pentecost, the Spirit of God is working amongst God's people. But in Pentecost, we go through the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And as the New Covenant is ushered in, it comes with new experiences, namely the the Pentecostal experience. If the Pentecostal experience is meant for everybody, then like I said, we're in trouble because none of you, to my knowledge, have pulled me aside and said, Trevor, i got to tell you about this Tongues of Fire moment that happened to me. None of you have had that. What happened to the uh, apostles early was significant, it was unique. It was a moment where they went from having the spirit in a certain sense in the old covenant to be filled with the spirit in the new covenant. And so the same thing happens with the Samaritans. The Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 is a sort of it's a sort of Gentile Pentecost if you will. But we, we, you and I receive the Holy Spirit Fully when we come to Christ in faith. And we know this because while there are seven references and four are about Jesus will bring it and two are about it happens at Pentecost, one is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And that text says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians is in part that not everybody speaks in tongues. But Paul does not say, I know that not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. No, Paul says everyone has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But they did not all speak in tongues. But they are still one. And they are one because of what God has done in and through the Spirit. So here's what we know. We know that Jesus is the one who brings the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know the disciples at Pentecost got this gift, and we know that every true Christian has this gift. So we don't hold to the two-step view, the step that you become a Christian, and then you have later, you have this sort of uh, this sort of second experience of the Holy Spirit that might be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about, so what do we do with these moments and what do we desire? And so why is this important? So let me kind of end by talking about the gift of true equality. Why is this important? Why is this important for us? Because it means first and foremost, there are no super Christians in the church. Let me dispel that myth for you right now. There are no super Christians. There are not two classes of Christians in the church. There aren't some of you who are sort of like, ah, yeah, I mean, you're like kind of a Christian, and others of you are like, they're super Christian. That doesn't exist. In fact, if someone says that they are trying to be a Christian, they don't understand Christianity. Because we don't become Christian by trying anything. We become Christian because of what God has done for us in Christ. Amen? So there's not two classes However, you may be aware of people who have experienced profound moments of confession and repentance and peace and joy with God. So what do we call it when someone who is a Christian and they got water baptized later on in their life have a moment where their life is just, for some reason, it's like it's like everything is, is different and their, their passions are awakened and their love for God is full. Is, is Filled and they're operating with a tremendous amount of joy and peace. What do we call that? Well, if you were here last, last week, you already know the answer to that question. The Bible calls that being filled with the Spirit. Through obedience, experiencing spiritual growth is like wind in our sails that takes place when we are looking for the direction of the Spirit, we are practicing the disciplines God has called us to, and we are praying and asking God to fill us with more of himself. But being filled in the Spirit does not always lead to speaking in tongues. This is important because he, here's what I need you to see. That, that Some people think your options are, one, a kind of Pentecostalism where you are a Christian and then you're sort of longing for this second baptism of the Holy Spirit that if you don't get it, you're not really Christian or you're not super Christian. Or secondly, many Christians, and I think we fall into this camp, who are like, the Spirit came to me when I became a Christian and now I'm just going to go ahead and live my ordinary Christian life and I no longer need the Holy Spirit. I think that describes too many of us. And Paul speaks to this directly. This is a word, I think, for our church today. And this is from Galatians 3. Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What does Paul say to the Galatians? He says, the spirit of God made you new. The spirit of God is what made you a part of the family. And now you're trying to follow God in your own strength. We talked last week about rowing a boat versus being blown by the wind. So one, there are no super Christians in the church. But two, there's no inferiority in the church. There are no unimportant persons in the church. You are equally important to every other Christian, even if they don't feel that way or see it that way, and sometimes you don't see or feel it that way. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, like you don't belong. You may feel insignificant, but you are not insignificant. What this means for us as a church is that we are always looking around, around one another and we are seeing the ways in which in some people's lives, that when they are suffering, we suffer with them. When other people are rejoicing, we rejoice with them. Because when we enter into this church, we do not enter in into a new kind of class system. Any pain is felt by all. Any rejoicing is rejoiced in by all. Have you ever had a hangnail before? Have you ever noticed how irritating a hangnail is? It's the tiniest thing on the smallest part of your body, but when it hurts, it's annoying. It hurts you. You feel it. Out in the world, there are all kinds of people who are viewed as inferior or insignificant. Not so in the church. In the church, we all came in the same way through the blood of Christ, Through the Holy Spirit. That's how we came into the church. So there's no inferiority. And there's no superiority. You're not better than anybody else. This claim. This truth. Radically shaped the Christian church. And astounded early church critics. The Christians. Can you believe this? The first Christians were known as being too inclusive. That was their reputation in the world. They were too inclusive. One of the most famous sort of uh, 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 critics of Christianity is a guy named Celsus. And he was so persistent. And Celsus said, Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, only women, and little children. He was just like, ah, who wants to be a Christian? That's for stupid people and women and slaves and kids. And that's not, and it's like the church was just like, hey, it's for everybody. I don't care how smart you are, how dumb you are, how rich you are, how poor you are. Nobody is better. That was, no, sorry, nobody is um, better than anybody else. This was a standard argument against Christianity. It was too inclusive. So the church is a community made up of individuals both strong and weak. We are not interchangeable with one another, but we are all equal in and through Christ. We are different, yet we are one. Hear me clearly. Your race, your social status, your wealth, your sex, none of these things, are advantages or handicaps when it comes to worshiping and fellowshipping with the people of God. And our entrance into this community is not because of us. It's not because of what we look like. It's not because of where we've come from. It's not because of what we've accomplished. It's not because of what we've done wrong or what we haven't done wrong. It's not because of how moral we've been or haven't been. It has nothing to do with us. It's because we know that we are more sinful than we think we are, and we are more loved by God than we could ever hope that we are. It's because by God's providence, we are hungry people who discovered bread from God, and we long for other people to taste of that bread, because only that bread satisfies No one in the church is inferior. No one in the church is superior. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And so when you walk into this space this morning, if you have any sense that you are inferior, you just don't know how loved by God you are. And if you have any sense of how superior you are to others, you just really don't know how sinful you are. And if you get both those things right, you will be confident, but you'll never be arrogant. And you'll be humble, but you'll never hate yourself. You'll never become self-deprecating. How can you hate yourself and be self-deprecating? Christ died for you and made you an heir of his and an adopted child in his family. How can you ever think you're better than anybody else? You're so sinful and so selfish and so self-centered. The majority of the problems you face are because you choose yourself above everybody else. So you get get confidence that never goes to arrogance. You get humility that never goes to uh, self-deprecation. You get both of those. And this is Christianity, and it creates a radically different kind of community, a community A community that understands that it's only here because of what God has done is then radically for people who are different than them. Outside of the church, people aren't different. People are not for each other. They're drawing lines constantly. We are a community, and so we have particular beliefs. Absolutely, you can't have community if you don't draw any lines. But our church, the Christian church, is a community that exists, for those who are not a part of it. That's beautiful. That changes the world. This is Christianity made possible by Christ and his gift of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So when you come across someone who says, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? The answer is, yes, I have. I am a Christian saved by grace through faith in God. And I seek every day to walk in step with the Spirit praying that God would fill me more and more, that my life would be shaped more by him. No, I am not, and we are not, Pentecostals. But we take the Holy Spirit seriously, and we turn to the Spirit, and we long for the Spirit to fill us so that we might be the people of God the way God has called us to be his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word and the reminder that we are all one. Our church is one. And we are one, not by what we have done, but by what you have done. For you have given us your spirit, and we long for more of your spirit. We long to be filled with your spirit, to walk in step with the spirit. We long not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We long to be empowered by the spirit, to know what the beauty of what it means to be sealed with the spirit. Lord, I pray that we would... We would lean not on ourselves but on you. That we'd walk into this space every Sunday, not as, not as the Pharisee, but as the tax collector. Not as the one who looks around thinking how good we are, but as the one who looks at you and says, Lord, have mercy on us, and that we know again and again that you have mercy on us because of what you have done for us in and through Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not rejoice in what we're able to do. We're, we will not rejoice in anything that we could accomplish, but we would rejoice that we our names are written in the book of life, and they're written in that book because you wrote them there, because you called us, you invited us, you made us new, you restored us. And so, Lord, I pray that our church would be a church of equality, a church of oneness, a church where we would celebrate the different gifts, a church that would be radically formed into, unified with one another for the good of those who are not yet a part of your kingdom. Lord, would you send us out into the world so that other people might be invited to be a part of the church, the community, the family of God, that we come into this by faith alone, that we experience its fruits and its pleasures and its joys and its blessings because of what you alone have done. Thank you that you have invited us. Thank you that you say we belong. Outside of this world, outside of this church, it is so hard to find belonging. But here, you say we belong. No matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've, we're up to, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've failed, no matter what our record says, You say we belong, and we belong by your spirit. We thank you for this gift, and it's in your name we pray.